We are um, nearing the end of our journey through the book of Colossians together. We have just two weeks left uh, this week, and then John Tavius will be bringing the word to us next week to close out um, the letter together. Um, and as we, as we come near the end of the book of Colossians, um, the Apostle Paul begins to wrap up the body of his letter as we transition into chapter 4 to some final matters. And so verses 2 through 6 of Colossians chapter 4, uh, they really give us one final exhortation from the Apostle Paul, at least in the body of this letter. Uh, this, the letter of Colossians began by addressing the believer's relationship with Christ. Paul calls the Colossians to, to see and embrace the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, to avoid any sort of teaching uh, that called them to look past Christ or to add to the work of Christ uh, towards something else. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer from beginning to end, from A to Z, from top to bottom, and from inside out. There is, there's no lacking in Jesus. There's no lacking in the person of Jesus. There's no lacking in the work of Jesus. As we often sing as a church, Christ is enough. That's, that's really what the first two chapters of Colossians are, are all about. And then in chapter 3, Having spent two chapters laying a foundation, Paul transitions to focusing on living as believers in Jesus. He calls the Colossians to, to set their minds on things that are above, to put off the old man of sin and to, to be renewed by living and putting on the new man, which is being made into the image of Christ. At the latter half of chapter 3, Paul dives into relationships in the church. The relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children, between servants and, and masters. And, and he calls believers to live among one another in a Christ-like way. He says that whatever we do, that we should do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this letter of Colossians has prompted us to look upward toward Jesus, then to look inward toward one another and toward our sanctification. And now Paul will direct our attention outward toward outsiders with a focus on his own evangelistic work and the community's relationship with non-Christians. So Paul not only wants the church to look up to the supremacy of Christ and to look into the pursuit of sanctification, but he wants us to look out to our relationship with non-Christians. Paul has two key actions, in fact, that he's going to call believers toward when it comes to their engagement with unbelievers. He wants them to pray, and then he wants them to act. And so this morning, we're going to consider what it means for us to heed this exhortation to pray and act. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, let's read Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 together. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. It says this. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. So I want us to consider this morning three ways that this passage 
calls us to pray, and then two ways it calls us to act specifically as it relates to non-Christians. So let me give a brief word to non-Christians in the room. Um, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, first of all, I want to say we're so glad that you joined us for worship this morning. We are so glad that you would gather with us. Maybe, maybe you're interested. Maybe you're, you're curious. Maybe you were invited by a friend. But we want you to know you're welcome with us. We're glad you're here. You're free to explore the Christian faith. Uh, in fact, I would encourage you to ask questions, but we're, we're glad you're here. And, and this morning, the message is all about how we as followers of Jesus are to live particularly among those who are not yet believers in Jesus. And the, and the whole idea that Paul wants to convey here is that in, in these verses is that Christians should be noticeably different in the way that we live our lives, and that though it may be peculiar at times how we live, that it should also be persuasive and attractive. Uh, and, and sadly, I just, I just want to say that often that is not the case. Sometimes we Christians fail to be distinct from the world. We fail to, to live our lives in a way that demonstrates how good it is to be a disciple of Jesus. We, we fail to show how desirable, desirable it ought to be uh, to come into the family. But, but at Emmanuel Church, our vision is to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. We want to be the kind of family that displays the goodness of Jesus, that displays the glory of Jesus. And so um, I want that to be true of us. I want us to live the kind of life before you that is desirably different. I hope you find that in us. And one way that you should see something different in us, in Christians, is the way in which we shape our days and our lives around Prayer. As Christians, we are a praying people. We believe that God is alive. We believe that God is real. We believe that God is near, that he hears us, that he cares. And so we, we build our lives around prayer. And, and in this passage, Paul gives us three ways that we should pray as believers. The first way that Paul tells us to pray is to pray earnestly. To pray earnestly. That, that word earnest means with consistency and perseverance. It doesn't mean that we have to uh, wrinkle our foreheads, but it means rather that we're, we're, we're constantly in a, in a spirit of prayer, that we live our days in prayer. Paul says in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer and to stay alert in it. Douglas Moo comments that Paul highlights the need not only to pray, but to make prayer a standard feature of the Christian life. I wonder if prayer is a standard feature in your life. You know, uh, Matt Davidson could tell you a whole lot more about this than I could because he sells cars. But, but, you know, when you're buying a car, there are standard features and then, and then there, there are upgrades. Right? But, but seat belts in a car are not an upgrade. Every car needs a seat belt. They're a standard feature that should be in every vehicle. And what Paul is saying here is that prayer is a standard feature of the Christian life. It's not an upgrade. It's not just for the super elites. It's not just for the super spiritual. Prayer is for every believer in Jesus. Moo goes on and he says, the point is that believers should pray habitually and with perseverance. That, that we all live in, a, in an ongoing pattern of prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 instructs us to, to pray at all times. Or, or another version says to pray unceasingly. To pray without ceasing. I love what J.C. Ryle says to prayer when he, when he writes, Paul said, continue in prayer and pray without ceasing. He did not mean that people should always be on their knees, 
But he did mean that our prayers should be like the continual burned offering, steadily preserved in every day. That it should be like the seed time and harvest, and summer and winter, unceasingly coming round at regular seasons. That it should be like the fire on the altar, not always consuming sacrifices, but never completely going out. Don't you love that? Jesus modeled this in his own life. When we look at the life of Jesus, when we read about the life of Jesus in the Gospels, what do we, what do we read but that he often withdrew by himself to pray. Jesus regularly called time out, withdrew, and went and talked to the Father. Now, if Jesus needed to often withdraw by himself to pray, might we need to often withdraw by ourselves to pray? Might we need to make that a regular pattern in our lives? In fact, Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18 to drive home this idea that we should pray uh, impudently is the word used in the New Testament. It's almost to be pesky with your prayers. It's, 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 it's to keep coming back to God in prayer. We should keep going back to God with our requests and our needs. I, I was reminded of this the other day when um, one of my sons uh, kept bothering me about ordering his Halloween costume. Dad, have you ordered my Halloween costume yet? Dad, have you ordered my Halloween? He was worried about me ordering his Halloween costume. And frankly, it frustrated me. I said, son, I'm going to order it, you know. But then I was, as I was studying this week, I was reminded of Luke chapter 18. And I realized that this is exactly how Jesus tells us to be in prayer. To keep coming back to God. To keep bringing our needs to God. To keep petitioning God until he answers. This was how the, new, the, the early church was described in Acts chapter 2. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. It was this regular thing. Both individually and corporately as a community of believers. They would regularly pray. Not just before meals, although it's good to give thanks. And not just before bedtime, although it's good to reflect before you rest. But to pray at all times and for all occasions when you first wake up. Now I don't know about you, I need some coffee to really be awake. So maybe you need to get the coffee brewer going. Maybe you need to get some sips in you before you pray so that you're alert enough to pray. But when you first wake up, we can pray. And as you drive to work, you can turn off the radio and you can pray. When, when you're homeschooling your kids, you can pray. Or when you're on your lunch break, you can pray. Or in between classes, you can pray. Or at dinner as a family, you can pray. Or when you lie down for rest at night, you can pray. Devote your day to prayer. To pray throughout the day is what Paul is calling us to hear. And see, what this reveals in us is our worldview. The frequency at which we pray reveals our worldview. It unveils who you believe fundamentally is running the world and making things happen. It exposes whose strength you're relying on to make it through the day. This is why Paul says to devote yourselves to prayer and to stay alert in it. Because you need God. You are not the one running the show. You are not in control of things. You need God. He's the one in control. He's the one on the throne. And so we pray not only because we need God, but it reminds us that he's the one we need. He's the one in control. Paul Miller has written a fantastic book on prayer called A Praying Life. And, and in it, he says this. He says, don't mindlessly drift through life on the American narcotic of busyness. If you try to seize the day, the day will eventually break you. Rather, seize the corner of Jesus' garment. And don't let go until he blesses you. He will reshape the day. 
You hear what Miller's getting at? He's saying if, if you live under the mentality and the worldview that you've got this under control, eventually it's going to break you. But if you will humbly bow before Jesus like that woman who is in desperate need of healing and grab the hem of Jesus' garment. It'll reshape the day. It'll change your life. That's what we do in prayer. We dependently cry out to God. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying to believers to let their days be reshaped by prayer. As Christians, we should be known. Like our unbelieving friends should know us, know us as a praying people. You should be known as a praying people person. We are those who call on God as Father and believe He listens to us and answers our prayers. We are those who devote ourselves to prayer and through it God reshapes our days. He he calms our hearts. And so Paul says first to pray earnestly, but then he goes on and he says secondly that we should also pray big word here eucharistically. In other words, we should give thanks in our prayers. He says in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with Thanksgiving. Isn't it interesting that Paul adds this modifying descriptor in Eucharistia with thanksgiving? He's saying, in essence, that as you devote yourself to prayer, make sure that your praying is flavored with thankfulness. Dr. Clinton Arnold says, Thanksgiving leavens prayer so that it does not become merely a selfish pleading to have one's desires fulfilled. I love that language of leavening prayer. We, we, we work within our prayers thanksgiving, and it changes the whole posture of our praying. The purpose of prayer is not ultimately to, to zero in on our own egos, to zero in only on our own needs, to make it all about us. In fact, the Apostle James warns us about this in James chapter 4 when he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The purpose of prayer is not to zero in on ourselves, but rather to zero in on God. This doesn't mean that we never come to God with our needs, right? Jesus taught us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. So certainly we come to God with our needs. But it means rather that... We want to fight against a greedy, ungrateful heart as we pray. We, we come to God in prayer offering our thanks as for who God is and for what he's done for us, just as we've just sang. And the Psalter can help us with this. Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. And great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. The Lord helps us all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them food at their proper time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near to all who call on him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and he saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him. We use the Psalter to help us enter into prayer with gratefulness, with, with thankfulness for, for who God is and, and all that he has done. As Christians, we believe in a God who loves us, who is faithful, who is, who is near, and who has met our greatest need. God has sent his son into the world 
to save us, to die in our place. And so in our praying, we, we come around this time and again so that we're filled with thankfulness for these things. And so Paul says we don't just pray earnestly, but we also pray Eucharistically with thanksgiving. And then this leads us into the third way that Paul says to pray, which is evangelistically. Paul says to pray evangelistically. Because God has been so good to us and he has saved us, we pray also that he would rescue others as well. Look at verse 3. Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Paul tells these Colossian believers, hey, I need you, I need you to pray for me. I need your prayers for my, for my ministry, that God would open a door for me to continue to proclaim the gospel. Paul wants others to know the mystery of Christ. Christ had been revealed to him. You know the story, how on the Damascus Road he was headed to persecute Christians. And, and God intervened and revealed himself to Paul and changed his life forever. And just as God had changed Paul's life, Paul wants God to change other lives. And so he says, pray, pray for me as I go to tell others about Jesus, that the word would be revealed. He longs for more people to believe in God's son and to be saved and brought into the family of God. And he recognizes that he can't fulfill his ministry in his own strength. He needs God to go before him. He needs God to open up doors of opportunity to share and to strengthen him for the task. He needs God to advance the word through him. Paul knows that evangelism is not ultimately about his eloquence of speech. It's not ultimately about his dynamic rhetoric. It's about the power of the gospel to save all who hear and believe. He is dependent upon the Spirit of God to do a work only God can do. And so he says to the saints in Colossae, hey, pray. Pray for me. Pray for me that, that God would open a door for the word to go forth. Church, I want you to listen to me. The kingdom of God will not advance without the prayers of the saints. The kingdom of God will not advance without the prayers of the saints. We can do everything right. We can have our doctrine just so. We can, have, we can be accurate theologically. We could, we could program perfectly. We could execute a perfect worship service. We could have perfectly sung songs and well-played instruments. We could be perfectly organized in our gospel communities. And if we are not praying, we are depending on our own strength. And God will not bless that. I think perhaps what is keeping our church back from experiencing a greater gospel harvest is a lack of evangelistic praying. I wonder how often you pray evangelistically. How often do you get on your knees and plead to God for him to save the lost in our city? For God to open the eyes of the blind to see the beauty of Christ. And for those captured by sin to be set free. As we come to God in prayer, Paul says we need to pray evangelistically. One thing that we see here is that we should be praying for missionaries and for church planters, those who are on the front lines of gospel ministry. So Paul's saying here, right? Pray for me. Paul was an apostle. He was a church planter. He was on the front lines of, of mission. He says, pray for us. And so for us, church, as, as Emmanuel Church, we pray for the Castellos and the Waldrops who are in Boston, Massachusetts. 
Church, we need to be praying for them. We pray for the Huddlestons who are in North Africa trying to make Jesus known there. We pray for our good friends Tom and Catherine who are in the Middle East. We pray for the Thomases in East Asia. These are specific families that our church is committed to coming, coming around and praying for. Are we praying for them? Paul says to pray for opportunities, that God would, would open a door to allow them to speak the mystery of Christ. We pray for relationships to form. And we pray for gospel opportunities to present themselves. That's what an open door is. It's a, it's a gospel opportunity. So he says, pray for that. Because God goes before us. The Spirit of Christ is active. We pray for God to open a door for, for relationships to form and for, for opportunities to present themselves, for Jesus to be proclaimed. And then Paul also says that we pray for boldness, that amidst suffering and sacrifice, that missionaries would speak as they should. Paul reminds the Colossians in this passage that he is in chains for his ministry. We believe that Paul is writing this letter while he's under house arrest in Rome. And he's under house arrest because he's been accused of stirring up trouble in the temple. You know what he was doing? He was proclaiming Christ as risen from the dead. And so Paul has been put under house arrest. He says he's in chains. He's in bondage because of his ministry. But he doesn't want that to, to keep him from proclaiming as he should. He doesn't want that to keep him from boldly continuing to share the gospel. He says he needs to make it known as he should. His chains are no limitation on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he says it this way in, to, to Timothy as he writes his letter to Timothy to encourage him. He says, though I am bound, the gospel is not bound. The gospel cannot be contained. And so Paul says, hey, pray for me that I should speak the gospel as I should. I was reminded this week of the story of Peter and John in Acts 3 and 4. Do you remember this story? Peter, now Peter, the Peter that we're talking about here, right, is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times while Jesus was on trial and then was crucified. And so Peter's not exactly naturally bold. That's not, in, that's not in his natural personality. But, but in Acts 4, what we find is that Peter and John have, have just been arrested for preaching the gospel. And now Peter and John are forced to stand before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and they have to give account for what's going on. And in the past, we know that Peter would have cowered. He would have shied away. But this time, Peter boldly stands up and he shares the gospel to the Jewish council, to the Jewish leaders. You're left to wonder, what was the difference in Peter this time around? Before they were arrested, what we discover is that Peter and John were on their way to the temple to do what? Do you know? To pray. And when they leave this council, do you know where they go immediately? They go to the body of believers to pray. And in between, do you know what the Jewish leaders say about Peter and John? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. That was the difference. That was the difference. And so they tell Peter and John, hey, you need to quit speaking in the name of Jesus. And here's Peter's response. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you'll have to decide. But as for us, we are unable to stop speaking about that which we have seen and that which we have heard. Peter says, we can't help but talk about Jesus. We can't shut it up. 
And so after threatening them, they release them. And you know what Peter and John do? They run. They run to the church. They run to the body of believers. And and they tell them what has happened. And here's the prayer that they pray as a body of believers. They say, Lord, consider their threats. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it says, when they had finished praying... The place where they had assembled was shaken. The Holy Spirit just kind of gives a nudge and says, I hear you. I'm with you. And it says they began to speak the word of God with all boldness. Did you notice that their prayer was not primarily for safety? They said, God, hear their threats and grant that your servants would be protected. That's not what they prayed. They said, God, hear their threats and grant that your servants would be emboldened to keep speaking the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for protection, but don't you love that the early church didn't pray for protection? They prayed for boldness to keep speaking the name. They knew that the temptation would be to shut up, to quit talking. And they said, God, we need your help to be emboldened to keep talking about Jesus. As I read that, I I just wonder, like, What was it that made the difference in Peter's life? What what was it that motivated them to pray for boldness, for more opportunities to witness? I think it's this. I think they had been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the same spirit that had filled Jesus while he walked the earth. Matthew 9, 35-39 tells us that Jesus went around all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when Jesus looked at the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. This is the heart of our master and Lord Jesus. It's a heart of compassion. And that same heart of compassion that was driving the ministry of Jesus, it now drives every single person who has been filled with the Spirit of Christ. Peter and John had been filled with the Holy Spirit. So they had the heart of Christ driving them forward, leading them to pray for boldness. Say, God, embolden us to keep speaking the name. That same heart of compassion drives us, church. And so we pray for workers. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so pray for workers. And Paul tells the Colossians, hey, pray for me. But then you notice something. You notice that as As Paul calls them to pray for him, he also transitions from merely telling them to pray for him to calling them to live evangelistically themselves. Look back at verse 5. Paul transitions. He says, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. See, Paul switches from asking for prayer to telling the Colossians how they should now live evangelistically among outsiders. That, that word outsiders, that, that can sound really exclusive. It, it simply means a non-believer, someone who is not a part of the, the believing community. 
That's what that means. And so what Paul is saying here is that the Colossians too, just like, just like him, should live on mission. The work of evangelism is not left simply to Paul. It's not left simply to the apostles. It's, it's not left merely to the vocational ministers. I, I remember growing up how once a year, I think it was about once a year, we'd have a missionary couple show up from the mission field, right? And they would come robed in their traditional, in the traditional, you know, uh, clothing of, of the country that they were serving in. For, for me, it was, it was Senegal, Africa. And so they would, they would come wearing, uh, you know, robes from, from Senegal. And they would, they would show us these, like, relics from, from the local, you know, community that, that they were serving in. And, and in my mind, I got this idea that unless I was in Africa serving as a missionary, that that, that wasn't really my calling. So, church, can I tell you that that's wrong thinking? Uh, the New Testament teaches us that every believer in Jesus is a spirit-empowered missionary of Jesus Christ. At Emmanuel, we emphasize that every person that has received the Holy Spirit, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.13 says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So if, if you're a believer in Jesus, the Spirit has come and he has filled you and he has anointed you and sent you out to be on mission. Now, some are called to go to cross-cultural contexts, like Africa. And some are called to serve in the apartment complex across town. And some are simply called to serve in their own neighborhood or to serve in their office building or to serve in the school that they attend. But everyone is called. We're all sent on mission. We're all missionaries. Paul was an apostle. He was called to travel the Greco-Roman world and to proclaim Jesus and to plant churches. But the Colossians, though they weren't called to do what Paul was called to do, they were called to be a witness to those in Colossae. And he specifically tells them that they're to do two things among their non-believing neighbors. And I think both of these things apply to us, and they'll serve us as we seek to make Jesus known here in Birmingham. So let's look at two ways that Paul calls them to act toward outsiders. First, he says, act wisely. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. When it comes to our engagement with non-Christians, we traditionally have taken one of three approaches as, as believers, and specifically as evangelicals. Sometimes we can take this, the seclusive approach. We, we, we seclude ourselves away. I call this the bomb shelter approach, right? We withdraw from the culture. You know, hide your kids, hide your wife. Like, it's bad out there, and so we need to tuck away and protect ourselves. But listen, if we take this posture, we're going to have zero influence on our unbelieving friends. We're going to have zero influence on the culture at large, this is not the calling of Christians. We are not called to shrink back in fear. We're not called to bomb shelter away. The second approach is to become secular. This is just the posture of conformity. We, just, we become a mirror to the culture. We just reflect the world back to the world. This is also not our calling as believers. We are called to be distinct. We are called to be holy. Our lives should look different. We should be a little strange. Now, we don't need to be strange for strangeness sake, right? We don't need to be, you know, just super weird. But our lives should be distinct. So that's the third option, which is to be salty. Here Paul says that we should be like salt that seasons and flavors and preserves. We should be winsome witnesses. We should be in the world among our non-believing friends, but we should be distinct from the world. 
but distinct not in a pretentious sort of way. Like that's where Christians get it, get it wrong a lot too. We're not better than. We were the world and Jesus came for us. Right? We were the lost sheep of God and Jesus came looking for us. This is not a better than distinction. It's a reconciled into the family of God distinction. We have become sons and daughters of the king. He has transformed us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we live in a different sort of way, but in an alluring sort of way. The Christian community is not called to bomb shelter away or to succumb to its influences, but to act as a preservative and as a flavoring to the world. Douglas Moo says that while resisting the wrong kind of outside influence, the Colossian Christians nevertheless need to stay engaged with their fellow citizens and to seek to win them to Christ. Paul says that they're to redeem the time, to make the most of the time. And this conveys the idea of urgency. Don't waste your time. He wants believers to recognize that life is short and that opportunities are limited. When it comes to our lives, I think, I think the most tempting approach to life for many of us is, is this fourth approach. It's, it's not that we would completely succumb to the world or that we would completely withdraw from the world. It's just to live normal, unnoticeable lives indifferent to the state of the lost. I think that's the greatest temptation we face. We just kind of do life. It's easy to take this nonchalant approach to life and to live our days as if Christ is not coming back and there is no judgment day that awaits each and every one of us. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that it is appointed for people, all people, to die once and then comes judgment. And so the commentator here says an important aspect of of wise living is to use the short time God has given us to best effect. John Piper would say it this way. Don't waste your life. Wise living is purposeful living. It is living in light of death and judgment. Jesus is coming back. Church, that is what we profess as believers in Jesus Christ, that he has died, that he has risen, that he is the ascended king, and he is the soon returning king. And we will stand before him, and we will give account to how we lived our lives, and so will our lost neighbors. And if they are not found in Christ, if they have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if they are not in him, they will give account for their sin. And they will face eternal punishment. That is what we believe as Bible-believing Christians. Are we acting like it? Are we praying like it? Paul says, act wisely, making the most of the time. It is foolish living to live for tomorrow. Live for a million years from now. That's wise living. Don't waste your life. Paul is pleading with us here to live in light of the soon coming return of Christ. And he adds to that to speak graciously. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. This isn't merely about talking nicely. It is that, right? We should be known for being nice talking people, but it's, it's more than that. This is, this is to be full of grace in our speech. We want speech that is full of grace, seasoned with the gospel. Paul is calling on Christians to speak with their unbelieving neighbors and friends with gracious, warm, and winsome words, all with the purpose of being able to answer unbelievers. Douglas Moo says here, Paul assumes that unbelievers will be raising questions about the faith 
of the Colossian Christians. Questions that may be neutral or perhaps even hostile. An appropriate Christian response will, of course, communicate the content of the gospel, but it will also be done in a manner that will make the gospel attractive. Church, this is the goal of our lives, to make the gospel attractive, that our faith would prompt questions. Are you even living in a way that would prompt questions from your unbelieving friends? And that as questions are prompted, we would be ready to give an answer, that our lips would be seasoned with salt, that we would be winsome witnesses of the grace of Christ. And at the end of your life, hear this, church, it will not matter what kind of car you drove. It will not matter what kind of house you lived in. It will not matter how famous you were or how well-respected you were by the outside world or what level of success you had. What, what will matter at the end of your life is the kind of life that you lived. What will matter is whether or not you lived a life pleasing to God that pointed others to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, we pray for strength to live for Jesus. We pray for opportunities to speak of him. We pray that we will know how to answer each person's question. And we pray, we pray for our lost neighbors that they would hear and believe. We pray and we act. This is everyday life for every believer in Jesus. Let's pray together now. Father, we do not want our lives to be marked by prayerless indifference, but to be marked by earnest petition for your gospel to go forth in the world and for the lost to be found in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would wake us up this morning to the eternal realities of heaven and hell. God, help us to to live lives that matter for eternity. And make us winsome witnesses of your son, Jesus. May we speak and act with a warmth of your compassion and your grace. And may we do this with the help of your spirit. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.